The following Knowledge at Wharton podcast is brought to you by Wharton Executive Education. For more information on Wharton's executive course, Supply Chain Management, please visit executiveeducation.wharton.upenn.edu. When Thomas Friedman wrote his popular book, The World is Flat, one of its central arguments was that geography might soon become history. The proliferation of information technology and telecommunications networks has integrated the world in ways that were unimaginable in the past, and this has transformed the ways in which companies produce and distribute products and services. One result of this transformation is the rise of networks of companies that are bound together through IT and logistics. How can firms strive for and gain competitive advantage in such an environment? Victor and William Fung, Group Chairman and Managing Director of Hong Kong-based Lee and Fung, and Yoram Jerry Wind, a professor of marketing at Wharton, deal with this issue in their new book, Competing in a Flat World, Building Enterprises for a Borderless World. They recently spoke with Knowledge at Wharton. Victor Fung, uh, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton Podcasts. Yes, hi. Hi, McCall. It's great uh, to talk to you tonight. Uh, William, welcome to you as well. Yes, thank you very much, McCool, for, for hosting this. And Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, McCool, for organizing it. Uh, I'd like to start talking about your book, Competing in a Flat World. Uh, you say in the book that uh, Lee and Fung is a flat business for a flat world and that you have evolved into what you describe as a network orchestrator. Could you please explain what that means and what implications it has for your customers? Um, maybe the way to explain this, Mako, is really to start off by describing the fact that the way manufacturing is done today versus, let's say, even as recently as 10 years ago has fundamentally changed. Um, there's been a major transformation over the last 20 years culminating, you know, really in, in the recent period because of uh, the presence and the use of the enablers like IT and logistics, such that um, whereas manufacturing used to be done um, in one factory, under one roof in one country, today uh, the manufacturing process is really being dispersed uh, and really being produced in stages in many factories, sometimes over many countries. So when you have a particular order, let's say of 100,000 shirts to uh, manufacture, you may in fact do different stages of the production process uh, in different factories in different countries. And then you put everything together to make the final product using IT and logistics. And because of that, we're really now in doing any product orchestrating a network of processes and suppliers, you know, in different parts of the world. And that network, I think, is very important uh, to, to really for us to, to, to work very closely with and that, you know, we don't control the entire network because they're all independent contractors. Therefore, we talk about orchestrating that network and making sure that all the pieces are synchronized and that the production comes out with a high quality and also with a very fast turnaround time. Uh, and that would actually allow us to be very efficient in, 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 the, in the production process. Uh, that, that's a great uh, explanation. Uh, William, would you like to add anything to that? Well, as uh, Tom Friedman said in his book, the world is uh, getting flatter 
in the respect that it is now easier to communicate and for, for example, parts to travel or, or raw materials from come from one country going to, to the best place in another country for processing. And uh, because of this flatness of the world, I think the, our ability to then use uh, the best factories at the best locations to manufacture any order is becoming a reality. Instead of having the factory being located uh, probably at first close to the market it's being consumed in, the, the production now of a lot of especially labor-intensive uh, uh, goods are now manufactured in countries where labor is plentiful rather than in countries where it's consumed. And, and I think that accounts for the uh, necessity of a business like Li and Fong to be able to operate without borders in a flat world. And uh, we've organized the business so that uh, we have uh, a very flat organization to also just cope with the need to respond very quickly to the needs of our customers and not have a very hierarchical structure. And that's the uh, flat business aspect of the way we're organized to operate in this flat world. You know, one of the things I found very interesting about your book is that you have more than a hundred-year-old history in business. Uh, you started out in 1906 in the during the Qing Dynasty. Uh, how did you evolve into a network orchestrator? Um, if, if I uh, if I could take a stab at that question, sure. Know, a lot of the, um, the, the the examples and and the experience we cited in the book were really because of the uh, pressures of customer and consumer demands, rather than uh, for some smart people uh, saying that this is the way we should be organizing the business. The business was actually organized in a way that responded to the needs of the market. And the response uh, to, the, to the trends or the needs of the market really started way back, uh, I would say, uh, after the uh, Second World War, uh, when uh, the, the prosperity in the developed markets like America and Europe uh, led to a situation where a lot of the young people were unwilling to take up some of the blue-collar jobs in labor-intensive industries uh, to make the kinds of products, uh, the consumer goods products that are being consumed there. And, and this, um, I would say this uh, rationalization of manufacturing uh, of labor-intensive uh, goods around the world really started from the uh, 60s and 70s. And originally, as you may know, uh, Hong Kong was one of those places where our whole economy after, um, uh, after 1949 became dependent on manufacturing for export and not for uh, home consumption. And, 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 this, um, and this ability to, um, to uh, manufacture in a different location from where you consume it uh, started to spread from Hong Kong to places like Taiwan, Korea, uh, the, the Asian tigers, and eventually to Southeast Asia. And this rationalization of manufacturing uh, really then led to a situation where we needed to um, uh, create the kinds of supply chains that, um, that uh, oversaw the manufacturing of, of these labor-intensive goods and eventually bring it back to the markets of America and uh, Western Europe where it is consumed. And, and it's because we were reacting to this, uh, to this economic situation, uh, the ability to manufacture at less cost in countries where labor is plentiful, and then having to bring it back to the countries where it's finally consumed, that led to the company being organized in such a way as to be able to um, uh, control 
uh, uh, these now more complex global supply chains. I, I think today, you know, we're really responding to a very important consumer trend, which is, as we all know, there's really been a tremendous fragmentation of consumer demand. Instead of serving one huge, you know, market uh, that are basically uniform in demand, you're seeing pockets of niche markets, and that is getting more and more evident. So as we see those uh, um, niche markets developing, uh, there is a need to come with increasingly uh, different products, and at the same time, we needed to actually forecast, forecasting of demand becomes more difficult. Because as, the, as you break up a large market into a fragmented number of smaller markets, uh, the amount of wiggling around in each of the markets becomes more severe. Therefore, in order to buy more accurately the right product uh, at the right time and deliver at the right time to, the, uh, to, to satisfy the demand, you really need to cut down the reordered cycle. So we really talk a lot today about fast response manufacturing. And this idea of um, dispersed manufacturing that I described earlier allows us to actually use triple sourcing and double sourcing at different stages that will actually give us a very fast turnaround time and uh, ability to shrink that turnaround time and hence be able to delay the ordering uh, to satisfy the market demand as long as we can so that we can buy more accurately. The, the reason this is all possible, of course, is because in the last 10 years, especially, there's been a tremendous development of information technology, the Internet, and also what I would call modern logistics. So with those two enablers, we're able now to actually really carry this model of dispersed manufacturing, uh, taking advantage of all the factors that is really described in, in, in the flat world, to actually uh, satisfy this tremendous consumer trend towards more and more uh, specialized market niches uh, uh, and, and different, uh, uh, different categories of products to satisfy uh, different groups of consumers that we see today. And I can see that this trend is actually just going to continue further and further as we go forward. Uh, that that's great. Uh, next, I'd like to turn to Jerry. Uh, uh, we, we've heard this really uh, interesting uh, account of how uh, both Victor and William see uh, the role of network orchestration from the point of view of their company. Now, uh, from your academic perspective, Jerry, uh, uh, could you explain how the Lee and Fung model of network orchestration compares with the models of other companies that are trying to deal with the same phenomenon of doing business in a borderless world? Uh, certainly. And I think we have to distinguish here between uh, two situations. Uh, there is the immediate parallel. There are other manufacturing companies who are concerned about supply chain. And uh, every company today is struggling with how to come up with uh, the, the best supply chain for them. And there are different models. Toyota, for example, has a dramatically different model of much closer links with their suppliers as opposed to the situation of the Li and Fong, where they have uh, close to 9,000 uh, suppliers around the world in many countries, and they design custom uh, supply chain from this network. And the challenge and the, the, kind of the strength of the Li and Fong model is by 
selecting, creating this uh, network of 9,000 uh, or so suppliers, and then for each order to customize a custom supply chain that is the best in delivering the right product, the right price at the right time, uh, based on the right specification to the consumers. Um, so obviously, when you're dealing with the supply chain area, the lessons from Lee and Fong are tremendous in terms of how to do it more effectively, how to truly create the, uh, the best possible offering for each one of uh, the retailers and therefore meet the needs of the customers, as both Victor and William articulated before. But the network is not limited to manufacturing the supply chain. We see networks all over, you know, in a sense, in every aspect of life today, we're encountering network, and there is no company today that can survive as an island, as a company by itself, but rather the company is to deal with a network of partners and others. And um, you can take as uh, kind of the other extreme, if you want to, the Wikipedia, which has been receiving a lot of attention, uh, the Wikipedia can be viewed as a network of the participants in Wikipedia. And there, too, it's not that it's totally organic and there is no governance and direction. There is an orchestrator. Uh, there is a governing body and there are rules. And uh, so even the, the totally open Wikipedia uh, follows some type of um, network orchestration guidelines. So you cannot alter certain entries, there are certain rules implied and the like. If you think about another example that people are familiar with, like eBay, eBay is primarily providing the platform and in a sense is orchestrating the buyers and the sellers uh, on its platforms. So what we have to realize is that the lessons from the network orchestration that uh, Victor and William have created at Lee and Fong are applicable to a wide range of businesses, uh, not only in the manufacturing side, and actually even uh, those who are not involved directly in business may find it interesting as understanding better the whole uh, phenomena, how value is created in today's environment to meet the changing needs of customers in this changing flat world that we are. Turning back again to uh, Victor and, and William, uh, could you describe for our readers and listeners what are the major challenges involved in network orchestration and also how do you tackle them? Well, I think the, um, the major challenge uh, we faced, uh, obviously, is the fact that the needs of the market is changing very rapidly and the need for flexibility is the reason why we went into uh, a network of suppliers for any product instead of a single monolithic sort of hardwired vertically integrated uh, uh, manufacturer in the first place and and therefore the need to um, the need to keep constantly providing all the options uh, needed uh, that by the market is obviously always a challenge now you couple that with the changing economics of uh, of the manufacturing in different parts of the world. And, and you will see that the network itself is a movable feast. It is not something that you can say that I've built now uh, in the next three or four years a network, and this network will last me uh, for a long time. It doesn't work that way. It keeps evolving. And our challenge is constantly finding the right uh, countries, the right factories within those countries 
to provide the uh, economics that's needed and the, sometimes the speed to market or the efficiencies needed by the market. And so one of the major challenges to this network uh, creation is that this is an ever-changing network, and, and we always have to be um, uh, updating it and uh, renewing it. You know, a lot of the uh, products that, that we, we're involved in are labor-intensive uh, types of products in manufacture. And as you know, um, labor-intensive industries is almost like the first rung up the industrialization ladder for a lot of developing countries who are changing from an agricultural to an industrial economy. And therefore, our challenge has always been to keep uh, exploring new frontiers, new new uh, countries to do our manufacturing in that provides a better economic or other solution. It's not purely economic. It could also be sometimes that uh, these countries have the raw materials that are needed uh, for, for any particular uh, product, for example, wood, for example, for furniture, uh, or cotton for our garments, you know, or, uh, or silk for our garments, or something like that. And, um, and so, so it's, a, it's always been it's an evolving uh, situation that we have to be constantly on, be on top of. I, I think one of the main things that um, you should know is once we now embark on a dispersed manufacturing model where different parts of a manufacturing process could be done in different factories, indeed in different countries, for a country to be actually uh, participating in a global economy, it no longer has to actually do the complete vertical, if you would, and have the whole whole industry. It doesn't have to go from from yarn all the way through weaving to, to making the garment, to be in the garment industry. If you're just in one segment of it, actually you could then participate in that segment of the total supply chain. And that actually allows uh, a number of phenomenon, which is, First, um, it allows the opportunity for much larger and wider participation for small and medium-sized businesses globally. And that, I think, is a huge phenomenon that is happening in the world today uh, with a lot of consequences uh, for economic development and job creation. And the second is for countries to compete, it no longer has to build the entire vertical before it becomes competitive. It could actually do a particular niche in a vertical. And indeed, it may be very specialized in a particular niche and then go and participate in different verticals. So it's actually quite an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon that's happening because this model is being implemented so widely now around the world. Even an industry that we're not actively engaged in, like the automobile industry, certainly uh, auto parts are now produced in different parts of the world. And if you look at something like, the, for example, the small electric motors that powers windows and so on in a car in, let's say, Germany, I mean, these are now manufactured primarily in the Far East, either in Japan or in China. And there have been very, some, some very well-known companies who specialize in, in niche markets, as Victor has said, uh, of creating these products and created basically and became world leaders in that particular uh, part or component. And I think this is what the, um, the, the network or the dispersed manufacturing could do to the industries, rather than having to do everything yourself uh, in a vertical setup. Right. Uh, now, thinking about it from the perspective of the company, uh, does what difference does it make whether your company is an orchestrator or it's orchestrated by someone else? I think 
what we're really talking about is teamwork. Um, whereas before, you might say that in the old model of a hierarchical, vertically integrated company, it's sort of all within one company. Now, we're not seeing competition be- between companies, but we're really um, seeing competition between different supply chains. So in a sense, um, every time you see a product competing, it's really one supply chain against another supply chain with a number of players in both. So when, once you have a team, there's always a need for somebody to actually orchestrate the team. So being a team member, I think, is, is really one very important role, of course. And then for companies like Lee and Fung, where we tend to be really not be doing any of the actual manufacturing ourselves, but we, we actually orchestrate the entire process of allocating the work, sometimes designing the product, getting the orders, and so on. So we act as an orchestrator, and that, that is, I think, the major difference. And yeah, I think, I, I think on, a, on a full supply chain, you really need both players to be very strong, both types of players to be very strong. Yeah, because if you don't have an orchestrator, McCall, uh, what tends to happen is that people focus on their particular sector of that supply chain and they sub-optimize. You need something to look at the holistic needs. Now, a very good example would be, for example, if you need your supply chain to respond very quickly to uh, changes in consumer demand. Uh, rather than have a sort of a buyer-seller relationship up and down your chain, you really need a very cooperative partnership relationship where you say that, you know, we don't know what the ultimate demand would be, but let's keep open capacity so that when we orders do come, you know, we can respond very quickly. If everybody sort of only mind their own piece, if they're a player in the, in the whole supply chain and they only mind their sector, you're not going to have that kind of, a, of, a, of a flexibility built in. And then so you need, in order to do that, you need somebody who looks at the whole chain and see how that responds and say that, look, we need the flexibilities built in in this part of the chain and that part of the chain. Sometimes it's in the raw material supply, sometimes it's in, in making certain components, and sometimes it's in the final assembly. Uh, so, so you, you certainly, uh, that's the difference between an orchestrator and a player or, or part of the, of the chain. There's somebody to really manage the whole chain, as Victor has talked about. But if you talk about this from the point of view of management in general, any firm, then I think that uh, every firm, their top management, should consider the, what role they can play and can they start playing the orchestrator role. And so this is really beyond, when you're going beyond the, the supply chain and the manufacturing side, any firm that uh, you're dealing with, whether it's in the financial service area or others, you have basically to look at the entire operation and uh, try to be the orchestrator. So in a sense, you can argue that every firm may serve both as an orchestrator and is also part of an orchestra, part of a network. But ideally, in terms of the kind of the changing management scene, we really see it as the role of management when they start thinking about the vision of the firm and the strategy to the firm of the firm is really to start looking at this broader and saying, how can I orchestrate the network that I am in charge with of and how what is the best way of doing it and really perform more the kind of the role of an orchestrator. Assume that you are the orchestrator. Uh, how, how should you structure 
incentives and penalties uh, for the network members? In other words, how do you balance control and empowerment within the supply chain? Could you explain that, please? Mm, that's a very good question, Michael. You know, we have about 9,000 suppliers um, worldwide in about operating out of over 40 countries. So it's actually a very large global network, and we really keep in touch with that whole global network through a very um, sophisticated IT system. Now, for every individual supplier um, uh, or member, group member that we work with, our objective is to take anywhere between 30 to 70% of that particular factory's output. Now, you might ask, why, why 30%? Well, 30% is because we really want it to be large enough uh, as, a, as a potential uh, buyer to be meaningful to the factory. Uh, but we, on the other hand, we don't want to take much over 70%, mainly because we want that factory to be able to work with other people outside the network in order to um, get new ideas and, um, and new um, uh, um, sort of um, uh, uh, techniques and so on from outside the network so the network is constantly being renewed. So you can see that within the network itself, we would then have really what I would call um, a loose, loosely orchestrated network in which people are not participating 100% in the network. They could be participating outside. And some people actually sometimes go in and out of the network. So I'd like to just describe the, 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 the state of that network first. Now, in terms of structuring the incentives, I think there are really two major ones. The most important, of course, is that we, being part of the network, we would constantly be feeding ideas, feeding um, um, uh, orders, uh, feeding um, uh, new uh, product development uh, uh, trends and so on to the members of the network. And we expect the network members to also contribute because they have exposure to people outside the network. And then the second very important aspect is Lee and Fong has a whole spectrum of customers uh, going from the very, uh, shall we say, um, cost and value-oriented uh, basic products to very sophisticated luxury products. And for, for any particular manufacturer, when they're operating at a certain level, uh, we're not simply just going back to the manufacturing every year and saying, we want you to keep producing the same thing, but at a lower cost every year. But we're actually, over time, trying to migrate that particular member of the network up the value chain as we actually can uh, uh, give increasingly sophisticated customers and products uh, for that uh, particular factory to work on. So, so the, one of the big incentives is this idea of being able to learn uh, from, from us as an orchestrator uh, to be able to depend uh, on us for a reasonable amount of the, the work that the factory does. And most importantly, having the ability to use the, us and the network to upgrade oneself, you know, to, to actually higher and higher value added and more and more sophistication. And that, that I think, is very important. That, to me, is the real um, incentive uh, for, for members to actually stay um, as an integral member of the network. I guess what you were describing is what you call in your book the the thirty seventy rule to create uh, loose yes. tight organizations. <laughs> yeah, that that's right, and then I think that's really the way we conceptualize, you know, 
a fundamental member of the network, and then that that really gives you an idea of how the whole network orchestration happens with these 9,000-plus factories in over 40 countries around the world, which forms a part of our network. How do you decide who gets to be in the network and how long they can stay in the network? Ah, Okay, maybe William, you could... uh, Well, that's really dictated by the uh, needs of the customers, and we have a very, uh, we have a wide range and a large number of customers as Victor had pointed out, in different levels of requirements. But generally speaking, I, I would say that uh, we, we select our factories very carefully. But even after the selection, it's really through um, a, a process of working with them on specific orders and specific customers that they started to evolve. And, and let me just say that uh, although Victor made it sound as if uh, the IT is all important as it is, we also have a lot of people in the network that makes uh, you know very qualitative uh, decisions about you know how factories perform and how they're doing, and we have a the the, the network itself is manned by twelve thousand dedicated people. They don't we don't have anybody who's man- manufacturing per se. We have only people involved in this whole network orchestration, and then we have uh, twelve thousand people in over seventy of uh, offices in the forty over forty uh, countries around the world. And, and this network of people uh, is, is really what uh, is, is scrutinizing and, and improving and changing uh, the uh, network of suppliers all the time, depending on both the requirements of the market and the performance of the suppliers themselves. Uh, Jerry, one more question for you. Uh, what do you think are the principal political and policy implications of the rise of these networks? Uh, for example, do you think there can be a regulatory oversight in the context of uh, nation-states of such networks? Well, this really uh, is a topic that has been very close to Victor for many years. The whole, <laughs> the whole issue that uh, fundamentally the traditional uh, trade statistics uh, don't really make any sense. If a product is manufactured in four different countries or six different countries, what is the country of origin? Uh, so I think that this really requires a fundamental change in the mental model we have as to what is a country of origin, because uh, this concept doesn't make sense. Uh, so I let Victor. Yeah, I would love to hear what Victor aspect. what Victor has to say and uh, whether organized that's an area of the great great concern. And then about <laughs> answer, let me come back to the kind of the governance question, because I think the network expression has a lot of implication to corporate governance. Victor? Well, very simply this. Um, If you think about the uh, WTO and the way we measure trade flows in the world, it really assumes a very simple model in which uh, a product is made in country A and is shipped to country B to be consumed. And that's, that's the fundamental assumption of the model and then and therefore, where, where the substantive transformation uh, that creates the product takes place is where all the value added is. But if you look at the model of dispersed manufacturing, the same product actually could be made in several countries before it becomes a finished product. And um, if you say the substantive transformation then occurs in the final stage of finishing, and basically that becomes the country of origin, that last country, so to speak, gets charged with the full trade statistics, whereas it may capture only a portion of the total value added, maybe only capture, say, 30% of the value added. 
And so it really, um, uh, using the traditional trade statistics, is really um, using a system uh, to describe a world which has already evolved and no longer fits the model. And therefore, you get all these distortions. A case in point is, for example, you, 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 you hear about this huge trade surplus between China and the United States, for example. And it's causing a lot of friction in terms of, uh, you know, uh, um, trade relations and so on. But if you really dig into it, maybe only 30% of the value added occurs in China. A lot of the stuff is actually the initial parts of the supply chain actually uh, originating somewhere in Southeast Asia, may go through one or two countries before ending up to be finished in China. But China gets charged with the full trade statistics. So one of the most serious implications uh, of uh, uh, policy implications, uh, if this model gets more and more widely used, as it is being more and more widely used, is that the whole way that we look at the country of origin, the definition of you know, where a product becomes substantively transformed, and the way we keep trade statistics need to be reexamined. So that's yeah, one of the me, very me, important. Yeah. yeah. Let me illustrate what Victor said with a concrete example. If you look at your laptop, um, cool. chances are that um, the memory device could have been made in Penang, Malaysia. Uh, the monitor was made in Taiwan. Uh, the laptop itself might have been assembled in China, but the highest value might be the Intel inside the, 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 the CPU chip. And, and, and if, uh, under the present trade statistic sort of rules, uh, if China exports that finished laptop to the United States, that become a Chinese export. And, and therefore, the trade flow is defined that way, and, um, and, and it's seen to be a Chinese export. But the value added on the China part, which is only the final assembly, which uses a lot of cheap, fairly cheap labor processes, could be far less than the, all the other uh, components and, and, the, and, in fact, the software that goes into making that laptop. So, so the, you can see how the trade statistics could be totally distorted in terms of, if you look at it in terms of value added, rather than the final place where, as Victor said, it's been assembled. And I think there's a um, complete revamp needed in the world uh, on, on how you record trade flows, because much too much emphasis has been put on uh, trade deficits leading to uh, call for sanctions against trade partners and so on. And, and the need for, and, and the, uh, I think the uh, rather unnecessary or, or almost impossible to achieve of, uh, need for bilateral trade balances. You know, it's almost impossible under this new world uh, where, where many countries participate in making a product to, to call for bilateral trade uh, balances between two countries, whereas, you know, many countries participate in this whole process. Right, right. No, I think you're right. And, and it seems almost like policy has been lagging behind uh, the forces of globalization and economic integration and technology. What, what kind of changes would you like to see if you had your druthers in that area? Well, I think um, we need to examine the whole issue of country of origin and not define uh, trade statistics the way that we've not captured trade statistics the way that we're doing it. It should really depend on allocating some concept of value added to different countries. But, uh, of course, this is a very deep theoretical issue that needs to be examined. But, Maku, I'd like to talk about, perhaps just touch on another major um, implica policy implication. 
um, as we see this model of dispersed manufacturing, you know, and this sort of fat business in the flat world emerging further and further, what I see is really an opportunity for more and more participation of small and medium-sized enterprises from around the world. Um, it, Li and Fung, because we, we spliced the supply chain so finely and optimized each portion, we, we keep on talking about the atomization of the supply chain. You know, that's sort of an in-house term. But I think the atomization of the supply chain also, in a sense, means that there's a democratization of the supply chain right. in that it really opens up to allow more and more SMEs and smaller companies to participate. Many, many of our 9,000 supplies from around the world are small and medium-sized enterprises. And I think that actually provides the world with a model for economic development, especially for some of the developing countries, which is very crucial. It allows even SMEs in the developing countries to participate in the global supply system, in global supply chains. Now, of course, there is a minimum price of entry. And in my mind, that minimum price of entry is that the, the governments that, 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 that host these SMEs need to at least provide the SMEs with the minimum level of access on the IT front so they can participate and also have the infrastructure uh, to be able to deal with the logistics of, of the goods flow in a very uh, uh, fast response manner. But once the government can, can actually provide those two enablers of IT and, and infrastructure logistics, then I think SMEs could really participate. And I, I think this democratization of supply chain um, really is, is a major f trend in the world, major phenomenon, and I think is a very good development. And that, to me, is one of the very important uh, implications or consequences of, of this model that we're talking about. One final question for all of you, and that is, uh, could you uh, speak a little bit about the major lessons you have learned uh, through uh, this process of network orchestration that you'd like to share with our readers and listeners around the world? Jerry might be a good one to lead off. Uh, okay. Jerry. <clears throat> I, I think the, the key lessons are really captured by the framework that we propose in the book. Uh, of trying to deal with uh, network orchestration is, uh, is primarily composed of three major dimensions. One of them is the need to, for a firm to start thinking not just about itself, the traditional firm, but how to balance the interest of the firm with the interest of the network. Uh, remember the concept that uh, Victor talked about in terms of the competing network against network as opposed to a firm against firm, which is a huge implication. And how do you create this balance, realizing that you're operating as part of a network? Uh, the second the dimension that uh, we kind of highlight is the issue of how do you move away from the traditional control? Because in reality, Lin Fang does not own any of the, the 9,000 plus companies, uh, but he has to be deal with empowered companies, empowered consumers, so the whole balancing again between kind of a new type of control and the empowerment of the participants. And the third area is the need for balancing between the traditional 
uh, focus on specialization and the integration and the capabilities for integration. So it seems that what we have here is we have a new paradigm for management that focuses on the network and the need to balance the network and the firm uh, that leads to new capabilities, new type of competencies that we need in terms of uh, the orchestration of a network. Uh, so we are kind of, at least from kind of the lessons from this project, we're ex extremely excited about some of the implications, and we're actually having a very large project at the SCI Center. We're having a conference coming uh, in November on uh, network-based strategies and competencies, which is really stimulated to a large extent by the work of this book. I, I think from a from a firm standpoint, McCool, um, in terms of running a firm on a day-to-day -day basis, I think one of the key words uh, in my mind is a speed and fast response. Your whole being is oriented now towards speed of response. And, and the other word is um, really uh, outsourcing, radical outsourcing, and uh, orchestration of net, a network. And that you don't uh, you, you don't really control everything in-house, but also at the same time, you're actually focusing completely on turnaround time. If I were to construct a factory today, for example, uh, the way I would put a factory together is not how to uh, uh, make very efficient, long production runs. That actually is a thing of the past. The key in my mind is how to satisfy customers uh, with very low minimum order quantities, and you want to arrange a factory so that you can make line changes very, very rapidly. And that's, uh, that flexible uh, sort of production, if you would, um, is actually going to be really the key to the future. And the way you run an, an organization like Lee and Fung as a network orchestrator, I think you really got to think constantly about speed of re response, which means a very flat organization total empowerment of people in the front lines so they can make the decisions instantaneously on the spot. And also having a very strong IT network so you put the information at the fingertips. And at the same time, you, you actually then got to think through also to an incentive system that will allow them to really feel like they're entrepreneurs and that they could actually be earning as if they are running their own small company. So it, it has very serious implications. If you could think of the opposite paradigm, if the world did not go this way of, of um, you know, global supply chains and orchestration of global networks and went the other way of, let's say, uh, vertical integration, then you're going to see a smaller and smaller number of larger and larger vertically integrated companies. And indeed, at one stage in the development, maybe 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you actually did have this idea of saying everything should be vertically integrated, in-house, etc. Um, so that would be a completely different model. That would be a very vertically oriented, hierarchical model. And yet we now have gone to a radically outsourced, very flat, very fast response organization. So I think that's the contrast, and to me, that's the major lesson from a managing of the firm uh, standpoint. It's very interesting. So would I be right in assuming that uh, in your model, the 
the network uh, orchestration model is not monopolistic, or, or, or is it the network that becomes the monopolist? As I said earlier, it's the democratization of the supply chain. In fact, to us, it's the more the merrier, isn't it? <laughs> the more we can get people into the network, the more we can actually have a, have a uh, network that, that, that hooks together more and more supplies, the more opportunities we have to optimize and more we can involve you know, people from you know, different parts of the world that could bring different ideas, uh, a way of operating and different capabilities into the network. That's extremely important that uh, you keep in mind that the lessons are really at all levels. The levels are obviously to the firm. Uh, the, the lessons are at a much larger context to uh, public policy around the world and for yep. economic development. And that's, uh, yep. this uh, concept of democratization of the supply chain is a very, very powerful one in terms of development now. So there are implications at any one of these areas. There are implications for us at Wharton and in business schools around the world in terms of uh, the, what is management. And the management under the model of uh, network orchestration is dramatically different than the traditional kind of concepts of management. Well, th thank you all for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Th thank, thank you. Thank you. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.